Well, if you've been on the podcast site, you know that uh, the first two sermons in John 17 I've entitled, This is Not a Sermonette. Um, it just seemed right. Uh, you can't preach a sermonette in John 17. I mean, I don't preach them anyway, right? Um, do you remember why I don't preach sermonettes, anybody? Anybody remember? They make Christianettes, which is, uh, and they're not good for, Christianettes not good for anything except going to church when it's not too inconvenient. Um, I don't preach sermonettes because I have to answer to God, and uh, I fear Him more than I do you, and or your and or your non-attendance. Um, and secondly, it's just a waste of time. I mean, why waste my time preparing something that doesn't move my soul? If it doesn't move my soul, it's not going to move your soul. So why waste the time? Uh, these are some of the good reasons I think I've come up with to. Uh, preach straight truth. Uh, I think these last three sermons, really all the sermons we do here would fall into that C.S. Lewis category of being for grown-ups. As I've told you in the last two sermons with respect to John 17, we are in on intra-Trinitarian communication. There's no other chapter like this. There's no other chapter in the Bible like this. Jesus is praying for Himself, for His men, and for you. There's no other prayer like this in the Bible. As I've said to you, this is likely the the scriptural Everest of all the Bible. There's nothing like it. And if you take it to heart, if you pay any attention to it at all, it will stir your soul. The truths that are revealed here are stunning. They are staggering. They are breathtaking. And we've seen those in the last few weeks. I've warned some of you, um, some of the things that we hear Jesus say in John 17 might uh, blow away your denominational worldview, so to speak. It's a little bit of a warning. Some of you may be new to some of these truths, but I don't want you to be new to them anymore. And if they're new to you, that's fine. But what I want to challenge you to do is Learn to love them. Work on them if you need to, but learn to love them. Learn to love the Word of God, no matter what He says. Amen? That's why ICM has been here for 15 years. Not because we preach sermonettes, but because we preach the Word of God. And there's always been a handful of of people passing through Milano who really wanted to hear what God has to say. They didn't want their ears tickled. They wanted to see what the great God had to say. As you know, we don't do denominationalism at ICM. We just preach the Word. It doesn't matter if I like it or you like it. If you're born again, you'll like it. <laughs> you'll just, it may be new. It may be hard. It may be mysterious. It may be difficult. But if it's in God's Word, you'll ultimately like it and love it and delight in it. Listen, if you can't delight in John 17, there's something seriously wrong in your professed Christianity. John 17 is just breathtakingly worship-provoking. How God has loved us. So, I hear things like this. As a pastor, as you might suspect, people will say to me, Jim, um, my family thinks I'm, I'm going off the deep end. My colleagues think I'm weird. Um, yeah, my friends say that they don't know who I am anymore. And I hear these kinds of things from people who 
are coming to Christ for the first time, who are being changed by Christ. I hear this and I love it. And I just say, yay! I mean, because if you're not weird, you're probably not a Christian. I mean, if you're not... Um, what's the word I want? I don't know. But if you're not that... If you're, you know, if you're not countercultural, that's the word I want. If you're not countercultural, you don't know. The Bible says the world will hate you. <laughs> I mean, how can you hold hands with it? When people tell me, people are saying I'm weird, Jim, I say, yay, because I think they're seeing Christ in you. You're supposed to be weird. How many times does God say it in, in the King James Version of the, of the Bible? Six times He says, you are a what? Anybody know? You are a peculiar people. What does it mean? It doesn't just mean weird. It means you're mine. That's what God is saying. You're mine. You're my people. You're my people is what God is Saying, I looked it up in the dictionary, this, this word. It means unusual, eccentric, odd, standing apart from others, distinct and particular, exclusive, unique. All of those things are true. But when the Bible uses this word uh, translated uh, particular, it means that you belong to God. God says, this one's mine. It's what we've been seeing in John 17. Jesus has been praying for the men that the Father has given Him. We've seen it six times in John 17, ten times in the Gospel of John, all told. I looked the word up, Hebrew and the Greek. It means God's own people, God's own possession, God's own special people. We belong to God. And we've been seeing it in John 17. Some of you have not known just to what degree you are peculiar peculiar from eternity past you are you are peculiar right you have belonged to god from eternity past some of you didn't know this some of you didn't know how big your salvation was some of you thought it was just you know something to add to my life you didn't know how big it was this is why john 17 if you take it to heart it'll change you you know, if someone asked him up to me and say, Jim, what chapter should I read if I really want to get some deep sense of the cross, of salvation, of the inheritance I have? I would say, I think I would say John 17. I'm not going to give you all the references. Six times in this prayer, Jesus talks about the gift of these men from the Father. And we've talked about this, that all true believers are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus will say that four more times in the Gospel of John at large. And I asked you last week, and I just want to ask you again, why do you think God says something ten times in the same book? Six times in the same chapter. He wants you to know it. He wants you to understand it. And you need to love it. You need to learn to love it. If you don't love it now, and it depends on kind of what church you came up in, there's a lot of false teaching on this. You need to learn 
to love it. So I want to look at verse 6 one more time, okay? Because verse 6 is like a core, a core verse in 17, John 17. I just want to look at it one more time. Jesus prays, I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. What is he talking about here? What is Jesus talking about? That they were the fathers and now they're mine. What's he talking about? Well, Again, if we just let the Bible interpret the Bible, we know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the Ephesians 1. Guys, I'm going to turn there one more time. Not to belabor it, but I want you to know these things are true. Some of you have not been brought up to understand that these weighty, beautiful, mysterious things are true. Some of you are afraid of them. Some of you do not delight in them yet. My, my, what I'm saying to you is God has told you this ten times that you, if you're a Christian, are a loved gift from the Father to the Son. Now, this means something. This obviously means something to God. And it should mean something to you if you claim to be His. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to read uh, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Jesus in John 17 and in many other places in the Gospel of John, He's talking about the guys that the Father has given Him. They're the Ephesian 1 guys. If you're a Christian tonight, you're an Ephesian 1 guy. It's just what the Bible teaches. And I've told you, if this is new to you, if you struggle with these things, don't touch the glory of God in the salvation of His people. Hey, it's okay if you want to struggle with it, but don't you dare edit it. Don't you dare discount it. Don't you dare explain it away. I just simply appeal to ten times in the Gospel of John. Don't explain away John 6. Don't explain away Ephesians 1. Don't explain away Romans 8, Romans 9, 1 Peter 1. Don't explain it away. Receive the Word of God by faith and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you to love it and to delight in it. Beloved, this is what, this is what the Lord would have us. This is what the Lord would have us do. Again, if you missed the last two sermons, uh, please go to the podcast site. They might be helpful. If you have any questions, I'm happy to respond to those. I would like to briefly touch on verse 9 again. We touched, touched on it last week. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus says, I ask on their behalf. He's talking about his, his 11 guys. Judas is on his way to, you know, um, betray the Lord. Jesus is with his 11 guys. He's praying audibly. He says, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. There it is again. For they were yours. Um, again, he's praying for his Ephesian 1 
Guys, this is a picture of Jesus post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension ministry. He's interceding for us right now. We will persevere because He will persevere. It will happen. It's a done deal, Romans chapter 8. Right? It's all past tense with the Apostle Paul. This should be great cause for rejoicing. And it should give you license to be a man or woman of God in the world. Right? If you're loved like this, if you're held like this, if you're protected like this. <laughs> These are beautiful things, beloved. You, you remember Hebrews 7.25. We touched on it last week. Jesus is able to save forever. Why? Well, one reason is since He always lives to make intercession. He's praying for you right now. And I told you last week, you should always keep this mental image of God praying for you. You will be fearless and bold. And when the hard times come, when you can't cry anymore, you'll remember who's praying for you. And you won't, you won't devolve into self-pity and incrimination and accusing God of not being good. Man, i got to tell you, I've been in the ministry for 30 plus years now. There are so many people who profess to be Christians who will come to me and talk about God not being good. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm, it's like, do you ever read your Bible at all? You know? <clears throat> God is good, beloved, even if you can't understand how, how His goodness is permeating your hard circumstance. I've said it to you the last three or four weeks. It doesn't really matter how much you understand. What matters is, do you believe? You're not saved by understanding. You're saved by faith. And this is what pleases God that you would believe by faith. Why did Peter's faith survive? We talked about it last week, Luke 22. Why? Because Peter was like, you know, he was so cool. And he was such a great apostle. No! He, he shrank before a little girl at the fire. And he denied Christ three times, cursing. Why did Peter's faith ultimately not fail? Jesus is praying for him. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Beloved, if you didn't have anything but John 17, yeah, <laughs> you could be a glad, reckless joy, um, yeah, believer and follower of Jesus. There's so much truth here. There's so much truth here. So the context again, Jesus will be on the cross within hours. He's just uh, finished his, fa uh, his farewell sermon. He's praying aloud for his men that his men may record it for you and for me. So let's pick up here verses 17 where we left off last week. Verse 17 to 19. Jesus continuing to pray, sanctify them in the truth your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So what's Jesus talking about here? What does sanctify mean? You know what it means. It means to be set apart. That's you. That's part of your peculiarity. You have been set apart as Christ was set apart to do the work He did, you've been set apart to do the work you've been called to do. Which is what? What are Christians called to do? 
To be healthy, wealthy, and have a lot of money. Principally, that's what's the most important thing. No, wait, that's wrong. You're supposed to be a witness to your spouse, your kids, your parents, your colleagues, your neighbors, your friends. The only reason you're still here is to be a witness. You're not here to make a lot of money and have a good retirement. God may give you that, but God help you if you think that's why you're still here. You're here to be His witness. You've been set apart to be His witness. <clears throat> I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 16, which informs verse 17. Listen. Jesus says, they are no more defined by the world. Oh, is that true of you? You're no more defined by the world. You're outside that category. They can't stick you in that box anymore. You don't belong here. You're an exile. You're an alien, right? You don't fit anymore. Everyone around you knows it. They know you don't fit anymore. Some of your friends are no longer your friends. Because the light coming off you makes them very, very uncomfortable. We've been set apart to do what God has left us here to do. So how do we stay peculiar? How do you stay peculiar? By surfing the internet. And doing social media. And that's not right. But being in the Word of God. You will not be peculiar if you are not eating the Word of God. You may think pretty high of yourself. I go to, I go to church sometimes. But out there, you're not a witness. Satan thinks you're a joke. I told, I told the <clears throat> young adults Wednesday night, I mean, if you're not in the Word, you're baked. You're just spiritual bait. Satan will have you for lunch. Right? If you're not in the Word, he's, you're a joke. You're a spiritual joke. You don't, you don't know who your God is and who you are. And the power that you have at your disposal. So, it's not simply that you won't live the Christian life. What I'm saying is you can't live the Christian life if you're not in the Word of God, if it's not your constant diet. Jesus says, these guys are like me. They're sanctified and set apart for the Father's will. I'm just going to ask you again, is that what your life looks like? Do you understand that you've been set apart? That you've been set apart for the will of God to be His witness? I heard one uh, preacher on this some years ago on this text. He said, Jesus is praying for His men. He's about to leave all of His miracles uh, in the world. Right? So, are we miracles? Yeah! We're born again miracles. If you're a Christian, it's a miracle. Of course, you know, if you're walking around, it's a miracle. I could go into the biology, but I'll, I'll try not to do that. I'll get off the point. But we are born from above, begotten of God, new creatures in Christ, passed out of death and into life, passed out of darkness into light, partakers of the divine nature. You're a miracle if you're a Christian. You're a miracle. Some of you think way too low of yourself. I can't witness. I can't be affected. Effective wrong. You can be and you will be. Just delight in God. And let those in your orbit see it. That'll prompt quite a few discussions right there. That'll prompt quite a few. 
Again, I'm just going to go back to you guys. I just want to give this to you. You know it. Matthew 28. Why are you still here? Jesus said, go make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So verse 18, as the Father sent the Son into the world, so the Son sends us. <laughs> verse 19, it's what He has sanctified, set us apart to do, incarnate the truth and be light and salt in the world. Verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, talking about His eleven, <clears throat> but for those also who believe in Me through their word. Who's that? Who's that? It's you! It's me. For two millennia, every man, woman, boy, and girl who's believed, genuinely believed in Christ, He's praying for you. He's praying for us. The, the, the whole of John 17, we fit right into it. Again, this is breathtaking. It's just breathtaking if you think about it for more than 120 seconds. Every true believer in this room and walking upon the planet right now is caught up in the glory of John 17. And John 17 just keeps getting bigger as we'll continue through the text. So, but I do want to make a point here. What, what did Jesus just say to His men? What did He just guarantee His guys in that, in that verse? verse? Is it verse 20? He's asking for those who will believe through what? Through what? Through their word. He's just, he's just told them backhandedly, they will bear fruit. Isn't that a joy? <laughs> uh, they will bear fruit. It's about to get bad. It's about to look hopeless. It, it, it's about to you know, hit the wall and blow up. And all these guys are going to scatter. But he's told them if they would remember it. I have no idea if they remembered it during the trauma, He's told them they will bear fruit. They will bear fruit. Men and women, boys and girls, will come to faith through their Word. And why are these guys... Why will there be fruit in their ministry? Because, man, they're awesome. These are awesome guys. No, they're not. They're less awesome than you, probably. Although, some of us in here are not awesome at all. And I'll own that myself. Shibomi's pretty awesome, but, but uh, I like him a lot. He's got the best smile in the history of the, of the world. Um, but why will there be fruit? Because John 6, 37 is true. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. Now, you just read the great biographies of some of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. Why did they go? Because they thought they were such great preachers and teachers and evangelists. They did not go because of that. They went because John 6.37 is true. All that the Father gives me shall come. This is why I preach. It's why I'm not an accountant anymore. If it was up to me, I'd still be doing debits and credits. If I thought it was up to me to save anybody, I'd still be doing debits and credits. I don't have enough confidence in myself to, to think I can save anybody, but God saves His people. If I preach His Word, God will save some people. Because John 6.37 is true, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. That's every preacher's great rock to stand on. God's Word does not come back, what? Void. 
So if I can just have some integrity and if I can just communicate somewhat clearly, God will do miracles. God will do miracles. Verses 21 to 23. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now I told you John 17 is just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. Did you hear what Jesus has prayed for the redeemed? Verse 21, oneness with God. Verse 22, tasting the glory of God. Verse 23, sharing in Trinitarian love. Okay, I said it last week, don't mean to be harsh, but if John 17 doesn't stir your soul, I think your heart dead or brain dead or both. Or you're, just, you're simply refusing to think deeply about what is being said here. What is being said? Jesus prays that all true believers would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. Okay? Perfect, flawless, seamless, absolute, total, complete oneness. And this is true of the church universal. We're not talking about denominations here. We're not talking about ecumenicalism. We're talking about the, the, the underlying spiritual reality. Every born-again believer is one church. It's just one church. All the miracles of God belong to the church universal. This is not a denominational thing. <clears throat> it's a spiritual reality wrought by God. You guys know Ephesians 4.4. We are what? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Then Jesus prays this stunning petition, a kind of oneness with the Trinity that they, true believers, uh, also may be in us. Now, this is one of those verses that's too awesome to speculate. I, I, I can no more plumb the depths of this verse that I could understand the far reaches of the cosmos. <clears throat> John MacArthur got close. I'm just going to read you a quote from him. First he says, we are one in the infinite and eternal life of God. He says, um, we are pulled up into the Trinity in some mysterious way, in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, as the Scripture talks about the true believer. Then he said this. Listen, I love this. God became joined to man in the person of Christ so that man could become joined to God in the person of Christ. I love that. Beloved, this is huge. This is God praying to God and He's talking about you and He's talking about me. That we would be one even as the Father and the Son are one. I heard a highly regarded theologian. I don't want to make any of you tense or anything. I think I've said this to you before. 
uh, in all humility, no sacrilege, uh, irreverence, or blasphemy. But he says it's almost, it's not, but it's almost, it's not, but it's almost, as if we're the fourth member of the Trinity. And I really think this is what the, the, this is the, this is the meaning of the text. We are caught up in, in some mysterious way into the infinity and eternal life of God. (laughs) If it doesn't change the way you live, then you have not understood it. You have not understood it. I sometimes overuse the word breathtaking, but this, this is not hyperbole. This is breathtaking. And why is Jesus praying about this oneness? Look at the end of verse 21. That they may be in us, what? What's that last sentence say? That the world might, what? Believe. Through you, believe. Right? Believe. So I want to make a theological point. If you're... If you're a believer tonight, we, you are in Christ positionally. You have a positional oneness with Jesus. You have a positional oneness with every fellow believer. That's the church universal. We're all born again of God. God wrought. We're all the miracles of God. But here Jesus is not praying about that um, theological oneness, that spiritual oneness. He's praying about the experiential oneness, the practical oneness. This is what He's calling us to as the church, that we would be one. I'm not talking about ecumenicalism. I'm not talking about that. That's a joke. I'm talking about being one in the eternal life that God gives. Being one in the Holy Spirit. Being one and being reconciled to God's... The, you know, theoretical Christians are a dime a dozen. They are a dime a dozen. Jesus is praying. As He said, I'm not praying for the world or any pseudo-Christians. We could just put it in there. He's praying for His people. His people who love Him. How, how, how is love or how is uh, conversion uh, displayed? We're, we're going through First John with the young adults and... We've already hit seven hallmarks of true conversion, but the one that, that pops up the most is there's a love and obedience there, right? I'm not just a churchgoer. I love Him and I obey Him. If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. It's, it's, always, it's just always there. It's always obvious. So if we're going to be more than theoretical Christians, we should take our cue from the Trinity. And what is the basis of the Trinity's oneness? Love and holiness. You remember what Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another if you feel like it. No, if it's convenient. No, if it doesn't cost you very much. No, if you're loved first. No, He says love one another even as I have loved you. This is the oneness you're called to. If you don't have an appetite for it, you need to go home and check your profession of faith. If you don't have an appetite to love God's people and to share with God's people and to be with God's people, this is a huge problem for you. This is not some small problem. This is a huge problem. And secondly, if we take our cue from the Holy Spirit, remember 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you have no interest in holiness... This is a huge problem. If you claim to be a Christian, this is an insurmountable problem for you lest you repent and come to Christ. There's no such thing as, you know, 
an unholy child of God. Yes, we sin. But we know what to do with it, right? We confess it and we repent. And Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. This is the kind of thing that the Lord is speaking about here. Verse 22, it's another one of those too awesome to speculate things. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. <laughs> wow! What? What? The Bible says you... God says, I'll not give my glory to another, and yet, in some mysterious way, He's given it to the Son, who is in turn giving it to us. We will taste the glory. This is as far as I think I can go theologically and comfortably. Okay? Because I cannot plumb the depths of this. But we will taste the glory of God. We will taste it, beloved. I don't know how that works. I don't know what that looks like. We've already begun to taste it. But on the other side, (laughs) yeah, we will indeed taste the glory of God. makes me think of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. You guys know the famous verse. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Breathtaking, yes. John 17, uh, 13, and verses 22, true believers will taste divine joy and divine glory. And you're going to live that small out there? Really? Really? I don't think so. And we've talked about this a lot, but I can't help but bring it up because it's so foundational and it seems like I'm such a bad communicator, I can't get some of you to to grab onto it. But uh, why is it good news that God will glorify Himself? Which He will. He always does. This is what God does. He's going to glorify Himself. Why is that good news to us? Anybody remember? I got to get a new job. (laughs) We get God. That's a good answer, Kyle. I'm going to say it a little bit different. Although that's it. (laughs) We get God. What did Amy say? I'm glad your parents are here. I'm going to talk to your parents. Because the glory of God is our joy. The true believer knows it's our joy, and we've only got like a, you know, a down payment on the joy of God. We're about to hook up to a fire hose, man, when we get up there. It's just going to be joy and glory and love, joy and glory and love, joy, glory and love. Are you going to live that small? Are you going to live that small? All that Jesus is talking about. May I humbly say that according to John 17, lukewarm Christianity is a colossal oxymoron. If you just had John 17 and no other text, you would know. You would know that that is true. So in some mysterious sense, we will taste the divine joy and glory of God. You guys remember John 1.14 talks about, John, John writes, and we beheld His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So 
what is when you manifest the, the divine joy and glory of God, what's it supposed to look like? We can just take our cue from Jesus here. It's to be full of grace and truth. That's what it looks like to incarnate the joy and glory of God. Jesus Christ is calling us to be a living, breathing, word-doing man or woman. And Jesus Christ's glory and joy is to be manifested in the living, breathing, doing man, Jim Albright. Or the living, breathing, word-doing woman, Lisa Nichols. Or the living, breathing, word-doing, Kyle Hancock. That's what He's left you here to do. Don't get distracted with, overly distracted with family and career and money and retirement and blah, 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 blah. Those things will not mean one whit on the other side of eternity. I'm not saying they don't have a place of importance here. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying for you is to get some perspective. Get some perspective about what really matters ultimately. And if God says it matters, it matters. It doesn't matter what Oprah says, or Dr. Phil, or whoever else you listen to, Joel Osteen. It doesn't matter what these guys say. What matters is, does God, what does God say? And what are you going to do with it, beloved? As you can tell in my preparations, I've been under conviction all week, so it's landing on you. <laughs> it's landing on you. Right now. So, yet another breathtaking reality there at the end of verse 23. How does the Father love us? In some lesser way. Some second tier way. Right? He loves us like a, maybe a second cousin. Right? Is that what... It, tell, someone tell me what the Bible says. How does God love us? How does the Father love us? What does it say? What does it say in the text? Is that big enough for you? Did you know you were loved like that? Shame on you if you didn't know. You haven't opened your Bible. You, as a Christian, if, you're, if, you, if it's all real with you, you are loved even as the Son is loved. I told you this was breathtaking stuff. And I'm not going to apologize for saying breathtaking like 18 times in the sermon tonight. This is breathtaking stuff. He, the Father loves the men and women He's given to the Son even as He has loved the Son. And I talked about this at John 16. We won't, we won't belabor it. But God's love is, is unconditional. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's, in, it's immutable. Meaning it doesn't change. God will love you forever. As long as God's been God, He's loved you. And that will never change. And nothing can separate us. As we know, Paul writes in Romans 8 from the love of God. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me be with Me where I am in order that they may behold My glory which You have given Me for You loved Me before the foundation of the world. This is the sixth time in this prayer Jesus has said this. the men you have given me. I'm just going to say it to you. Yes, it's Ephesians 1. Yes, it's Romans 8. It's Romans 9. Yes. If this is new to you, go deal with it. It's like I tell some of my, some of my friends that have come through this church quite often. They all know where I am on this. 
You know, I said, hey, go work on it a couple years, come back and let's talk. I spent years on it. It's worth the effort, beloved. It's worth the effort. The redeemed are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And Jesus prays, Father, I want all these that You have given Me, all these love gifts of which I'll never lose one, He says. Father, I want them to be with Me forever. I desire that they be with Me. Don't you desire to be with Christ? Oh, here's the unbelievable thing. He desires to be with the likes of you and me. It's, it's, a, it's breathtaking, right? You know your sin. You go home and look in the mirror. You know what you're up to. And he loves us like this. And he desires to be with us. And I know you have problems here. I have problems here. But, you know, if I could get some perspective... I'm on my way to God, man, and it's going to be awesome. Stop letting Satan steal every day of your life by worrying about the three things that aren't perfect. That's how Satan is stealing your life and your joy. So, I heard a guy say it once, and, and uh, I believe it's true. What's the fundamental core need of, of the human heart, the human soul? There's a number of ways to answer that question, obviously. But I love what he said. Intimacy, beauty, and adventure. And if you'll think about it very long, you'll understand that that's exactly right. What you long for, ultimately, as much as anything, is intimacy, beauty, and adventure. So look at the intimacy here verse in verses 21 and 22. We are to be one... As the Godhead is one, verse 21 and 23, we are to be in some mysterious way caught up into the Godhead. Verse 23, we are to be perfected in unity. We're seeing all of this intimacy. And then we see the beauty, right? We just get a glimpse of the beauty. You look at the word glory in the original language, Hebrew and Greek, and it, and it talks about beauty and majesty and splendor and grandeur and brightness and magnificence and wonder. So there's all this beauty in the glory of God. It's an amazing thing. Psalm 50, verse 2, God shines in glorious radiance and He desires to be with you and me. Infinite beauty. We've talked about it. The eternal gasp. Revelation chapter 4. This has helped me. I'm just going to read it to you. Think of all the beauty you've ever seen. Think of all the beauty every man, uh, woman, boy, and girl has ever seen. Think of all the beauty that men have yet to see in the infinite expanse of space. Add it all up. Multiply it times one gazillion. I don't think it's a real number. But multiply it times that. All that beauty is less than one single molecule of, the water, uh, of water in the infinite ocean of, that is the beauty of God. We talked about it last week. How big is the cosmos? The observable... Radius, Kyle? Was it radius? It was a... What was it, Amy? It was radius. Okay, good job. Twinkie for you. Gigaparsecs? How many gigaparsecs? 28.5? You remember that? 93 billion light years. 93 billion light years. How beautiful is God? That's a clue. I just have to share one C.S. Lewis quote with you and I'm closing up. Listen to what Lewis says about beauty. I love this quote. We do not want merely to see it, 
though God knows that is bounty enough, we want something else that we can hardly put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive it into ourselves. We want to bathe in it. We want to become part of it. John 17. God says you will. And then the third deep longing of the human soul is not explicit, but it's implicit. What is the, advent- the, the adventure of the new heaven and the new earth? What is the adventure? God. God's the adventure. God's the adventure. If you don't have any kind of cognitive sense that that's true, then you're not thinking rightly about God. God is adventure enough for you for a billion eternities. So let's close up. Verse 25 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. I like to say to you a lot, that Christianity is radically personal. If it's not radically personal, it's not Christianity. It's just some other dead religion. Verse 25, there is a knowing intimacy between the Father and Son. Verse 26, there is a knowing intimacy between God and His people. It's always personal. The ultimate fact of the universe is a personal God. This is what men hate. Men hate the, the, the fact that a personal God is behind all of it. They'll come up with all kinds of crazy exotica, you know, to explain the, the, uh, the cosmos, the Big Bang. All kinds of goofy stuff. They don't want to deal with the personal God that each one of us will deal with. We saw that in, in verse 3 of John 17, Christianity is personal. Jesus says this is eternal life that they may know you. So, I'm going to close with this. I read a, <clears throat> a uh, article some time ago and it talked about declining church attendance in the U.S. Um, this may be true in your home country. It may not be true. And the follow-up question was asked, why did you leave? You're not going to believe what they said. They were bored. Okay, we know two things immediately. They're not looking at God, the real God, the biblical God. They're not looking at the biblical God and they've never read John 17. You can't be bored with Christ if you just get some small sense of the glory that is John 17. Yeah, we're, we're not bored at ICM. We're in awe. We know we're peculiar and we love it. We embrace it. We are a love gift from the, Father and the, from the Father to the Son. We've been adopted before the foundation of the world and we love it! And we proclaim it! We're not ashamed of it and we don't discount it. We don't edit it! Our inheritance and adventure is God. And God has called us into intratarian joy. Verse 14, intratarian 
Trinitarian intimacy, verse 21, intra-Trinitarian glory, verse 22, and intra-Trinitarian love, that's hard to say, verse 23. This is what God has called us into. So don't, listen, don't ever say you're bored at church. That's a reflection on you. <laughs> of course, it depends on what church you're going to, <laughs> okay? That's a reflection on you. If the, God, if, if the biblical God's being proclaimed... That's a reflection on us, beloved. So, you can't be bored if you're looking at John 17. Listen, I, I heard, uh, I heard uh, one of the Puritans wrote, okay, three sermons, it's not enough, but that, I'm going to move on because Easter is looming. Uh, so I'm going to move on. But I, I, I heard this week that uh, one, one Puritan wrote a 500-page commentary on John 17. Okay, that's how much is there. I could preach on it the rest of my life and not touch it. But that's all we've got. If you have any questions, let me know. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight.